You are listening to the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. I'm your host, Mike Petchy. How are you? What's happening? Come on in. Have a seat. Uh, how you doing? How's life? Have you found some, uh, have you found new work? Are you working on new projects? What's going on? Are, are you one of the many who are getting incredibly stressed out every time you see a new meme or read a new article on the advancements of AI technology? Um, I understand it completely. I totally do. Uh, it seems like every day there is some new promoted uh, thing that comes out where it's like, hey, man, do you never want to uh, work with a concept artist again? <laughs> do you uh, want to figure out a way to create video without hiring a video team? Holy shit. Um, hey, how about, I know you do a podcast. Wouldn't it be great if there was some sort of algorithm that could just automatically edit all of your multicams and have it done immediately and create all your clips? Yes. Uh, this stuff does exist. This stuff is happening. And this stuff is creating a sense of anxiety for many of you that work in this business. And I completely understand why. Um, today, I'm going to talk a bit about this later on in the episode. But I think as we are confronted with this, because there isn't anything we can do about it. There's nothing you can do about it. This technology is out there. Uh, everybody is, uh, as usual, as the human race, we're sort of going, oh, we made this thing and oof, there were all these repercussions and oof, we didn't really think about it before we started making it. So uh, it seems like everyone's trying to catch up with it right now and trying to figure out if there needs to be regulations. Uh, it's a big part of why the strikes are happening right now in the movie business. Um, and... I, look, I, I, I don't want to add to the fear. I think the fear is kind of ridiculous. Uh, I was just using Midjourney this morning to try to come up with some concept work uh, prior to writing a script. Now, before you give me shit, this is a stage that I wouldn't even hire a concept artist for. Basically, what I'm just looking for is uh, a palette of images that I can then give the screenwriter, Will, uh, to, so that he feels a little bit inspired by it. So I can explain to him, instead of me saying on the phone, like, dude, it'd be sweet if it happened in a barn. And then he pictures like this lame barn with like, you know, Charlotte's web spiders crawling around it. And he goes, that's stupid. I don't want to do that. I get to send him sort of an image that has the flow and the vibe of it. And he goes, oh, I see what you're saying. I could write a whole sequence in this space. That's what I'm using it for. I'm using it to get over what they call the white page issue, right? Which is the blank page where you're like, fuck, how do I get started? Where do I go? It's really great for that. And so that's how I'm using it. But my point is, <laughs> and if you go to my Instagram a few weeks ago, I posted this, uh, which is uh, I just put a prompt into mid journey and I said, a guy grabs a chainsaw and you can see the results. Uh, so before you guys start sweating it, you concept artists out there, yes, it learns pretty quickly, but it's incredibly difficult for a storyteller to be specific with it. And what I enjoy about working with concept artists is I can be very specific with them and also get the imaginative thing and all their life experiences and their experience using whatever tools they're using to create it. That's what's really great. And so I guess my point as I ramble on here is that I'm going to make it my goal to make sure that we're celebrating the human experience as the show continues. And as I get people on the show, as I get guests like today's guest on the show, 
Um, I want to make sure that what we're doing is further pitching you on why it's so important to be promoting, to be having human experiences, to be out there meeting people, uh, and in using that in your work. You know what I'm saying? Uh, anyway, it's been a while since I've done an editing episode, and they are very popular on the show. There's a lot of filmmakers, there's a lot of editors, there's a lot of post-production people that listen to the show. There's a lot of editors that have Puget Systems that listen to the show. There's a plug for our sponsor. So I'm very excited about today's guest. Miguel Amadio is on the show today. Uh, he's an editor. He's been a photographer. Uh, we're here to talk about uh, his work on his new feature that he just finished, or he's in the process of finishing, uh, called Two Lives in Pittsburgh. And the two of us really go into uh, what it's like to be an editor. Uh, gives uh, We give a lot of tips to young editors out there who have essentially just been training themselves in the YouTube school. And you're going to hear a lot of tips from us that you won't hear on YouTube channels, on uh, different uh, avenues that you should practice, on different things that you should do when you're dealing with clients or how you handle producers or how you handle directors and how you, you know, essentially job secure yourself. Um, so there's a lot of that talk on today's show. Um, Miguel's a great dude. Him and I really get along. I could do a whole nother episode with him. So uh, I can't wait for you guys to hear it. But before we get into it, thank you everybody for following me on Instagram. I'm Mike Petchy and following the podcast at In Love With The Process Pod on Instagram and for going to inlovewiththeprocess.com. That trilogy of places, all those spots are places that you can go to get the resources you need when you listen to the episodes. Um, also, uh, you can be a part of contests. I give away t-shirts. I post what I'm doing. A lot of the stuff that I talk about on the show has been posted on Instagram. So it's a great reference while you're listening to check things out. You know what I mean? Um, all right. Without further ado, let's get into it. I'll catch up with you guys at the end of the episode. Let's get into the interview with Miguel. So strap yourselves in. You might want to take some notes. Um, and uh, if you are a filmmaker, if you're a video editor, or if you're just a general television reality TV fan, there's a whole lot for you to learn on today's episode of In Love With The Process. Miguel, thanks for being on the show. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me, Mike. I'm excited, man. I'm excited to talk to 
uh, fellow editor. It looks like you're mm-hmm. also uh, a photographer as well. Did I notice that? Yeah. 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 The photography, the photography was always my, my first love, but, but uh, quickly realized when cinematography didn't work out that, um, that editing was <laughs> where I was destined to be. <laughs> All right. We'll get into that. It's an interesting little hole. And, um, <laughs> Uh, I'm excited to have you on here. Your PR people reached out to me and you guys are prom- promoting this new film that you cut two lives yeah. in Pittsburgh, which I saw the trailer yep. for. It looks cool. looks fun. Yep. Um, so thanks for being here, brother. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I, um, uh, we, we, you, you know this cause I've heard you talk about it before, but you know, like e- e- editing episodes are a dime a dozen. So they're, it's it's nice to actually talk to someone who actually knows what this fucking process is like and um, okay, okay. knows the work that goes into it. Okay, when you say they're a dime a dozen, what do you mean? It, look, let, let's further further, uh, further mean, compliment me. I like this. Keep going. <laughs> no, the the you know, the podcasts in general that um, that are actually talking about not, not just talking to cinematographers or to great directors or writers, but actually talking to the people that make the movies things together yeah, and yeah. make the directors look like amazing humans or yes. horrible humans. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I say this as a director, I say this as an editor. Uh, yeah. I've done both. I've worked for other people. I've been a, uh, yeah. an editor. I've been a director of photography for other people. So yeah. yeah, it's all different stages of ego management. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I I spent I spent years like sort of wearing multiple hats before I before I just I just got myself laser focused on on this whole you know thing. Why, so why was it uh, why was it editing that uh, you ended up landing on? I, you know the thing is 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 when I started way back in two thousand four. Um, this whole thing, YouTube was just launching. And, and I remember, I remember that my, my roommates and I, we were aspiring filmmakers, didn't live in LA yet, mm-hmm. um, was, was still in the Bay area. And I, I remember those days where shit was new. Yep. Uh, the, the DVX, <laughs> the DVX, 100, uh, yeah, DVX 100 camera yeah. was like the big, the big boy for the independent quote unquote, uh, filmmaker. Yep. And, um, and I remember, I remember when we decided to get into this whole thing, um, I was taking some community college courses, uh, about editing and filmmaking and music video classes and, you know, that whole, yep. that whole thing. And it, and it turned out that w- in my music video class, we, we bought a bunch of gear, uh, including computers and stuff like that. Um, we, we sort of pooled our resources and then we took, uh, the roommates and I took a, the same classes together so we could be grouped up because we had all these resources. And it turned out that I, because of the group that we were in, in a music video class, um, we had another editor who ended up like in the last week of classics just dropped out and yeah. then turned out he hadn't edited anything. Yeah. So <laughs> I was forced to jump into the editor's seat and um i didn't know what the fuck i was doing and so i i just jumped right into uh iMovie like way back in 2004 and that was that was how i initially got my start but that was such a week of stress yeah i came out the other end thinking like 
man, we produced in a week. I was able to cut not one, but two music videos because we had a large, our group was the largest group in the class. So our professor made us make two videos. Sure, uh, sure. <laughs> so, so it was one of those things that we came out the other end and I was just like, oh shit, okay. Stressful, yes, but the the result, uh, we at the time, it's embarrassing now to look at it, but at the time, we still got a great grade. And, and it, I remember just thinking, that felt good. And it, it felt good to see people's reaction to it in the class. And, you know, it's a small bubble, of course, but sure. But it was sort of a start. Yeah. And I, I jumped into Final Cut and learning Final Cut and all this stuff. And at that time, I was wearing the, the hats that I think all filmmakers do when they start, which is, you know, you shoot to edit yep. and your own stuff. And that's how we would get jobs and weddings and events and yep. corporate shit, you know, so we could pay our bills. And, um, and I, I remember getting to a point where I said, okay, I'm going to do because I love photography, I'm going to do the cinematography side of things or I'm going to do the editing side of things until I'm going to do both until one doesn't make sense anymore. Sure. And, and we were working on a short film where our composer, uh, Nicholas O'Toole, was here in Los Angeles. And it was a big deal for us to get him because he had done a bunch of film and TV shows. And he was a big... He was, he was outside of our budget, but he loved the heart that we were putting into our film and our film sucked, but he did an amazing <laughs> job on the, on the music. And I remember I would come out to LA and he was like, dude, you like, you gotta be out here. He's like, you, you got the eye for it. You got the ability for it. He's like, you're never going to be in a town with more competition, but it's such a huge support network. I, sure. And he wasn't, he wasn't wrong, man. Like I, I, I moved to LA the next year and I've, I've been here for man, close to 13, 14 years. Yeah. Time, so. time travel, brother, especially out here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right. So let's, let's rewind a bit here. What the fuck did they teach you in music video class? Like what? <laughs> it, it was, it was a sort of a, uh, an offshoot of our editing class. So we, we had an editing course and then that same editing professor had a music video course. And and the reason he did that was because music videos are fucking fun to make. And he was trying to, he was trying to encourage, Hey, like just because you're learning about directing, just because you're learning about, you know, the, the photography aspects and the producing aspects of things and the editing aspects of things. He's like, there's a difference between cutting stock yeah. footage that he had to get in boring lectures and actually saying, okay, here's your objective. Go find a band, go make your own music video. You have all semester. Every week we check in, we learn about editing techniques. We talk about cinema techniques and the whole pursuit of it was to, to put real world application. And so it was, it was cool because it was graded, but it, it was like our, our teacher Cedric was just, he was such a he was ahead of the he was ahead of the curve, right? Because he understood like the the way that you you learn this shit is by doing. Yeah, and and so he put a lot of trust in in just saying like if you're if you're taking this class, you know you're working, and it's 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 fun, but it's also we're going to critique your shit at the end of the at the end <laughs> of the semester. So come prepared, right? Yeah, so, it's, it sounds good, man. It sounds like he was doing the right thing. Yeah. I I feel like yeah. I, I should offer up a master's course. 
on <laughs> on how to negotiate your rates and how to deal with record uh, labels and how to deal with bands. <laughs> how to process yeah, yeah. how to process dumbass fucking treatments that come in. Yeah. And yeah. you know, how to deal with uh, you know, car salesmen shysty, you know, mm-hmm. you know, uh, vacuum cleaner <laughs> salesmen fucking record label record label executives, you know, it's just yeah, you know, uh, yeah. I, and if I sound bitter, it's because that's you know I I spent about ten years, fifteen years in that shit. So. Uh, dude, dude, I, I I walked away. I walked away from corporate uh, videos, weddings, and events. I mean, that was when when I chose to move to LA. I, I'm I moved to LA with one of my roommates. We started a company specifically geared towards content creation for actors because we 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 had a lot of actor friends. And we weren't actors, we were the filmmakers, but we were we were doing little scenes anyway. So for us, when we decided to make LA a thing, we we're like, dude, we can't we can't do this wedding corporate shit. Cause that's just gonna suck the life out of us and it's gonna take up all our time. And you're like, dude, you're not moving to LA to- for something we could be doing anywhere else. Yeah. Smart. And probably doing it better anywhere else smart. than LA because LA is entertainment capital of the world so we came to la with a plan and um and just left that whole world behind but it was it's shitty man because it just sucks everything out of you and and yeah it's just you don't feel you don't feel inspired yeah no you don't feel inspired and then there's this sense of desperation that you have when you're younger totally that is easily abused like very easily abused and so i worked i worked with a guy i worked with a guy for probably a year when I was starting out and, and he had, he was, I don't know, he must've been in his sixties and he, he had his old wedding and event business and we'd go out and we'd shoot weddings. And I just remember he had like stacks of LaCie drives like in his <laughs> thing. And I thought that shit was impressive. I'd see a stack of LaCie drives just loosely stacked on top of each other with no, <laughs> you know, with no organization or system. But at the time I didn't know any better. I was like, Oh wow, he's got a lot of hard drives. He must be successful. And I just remember by the end of that year, I was like, fuck this guy. Fuck this. It, 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 nice enough. But like, that I, I was like, I don't, I don't want to be there when I'm I, in my sixties. I don't want to be not loving what I do. There's yeah. no guarantees in life, but I, that guy was not enjoying life. He was, yeah. you know, yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It's always tough, man. It, it, like, yeah. it's good that you got out of that. It's good that you guys came into town with a plan. And, and so <laughs> what were you doing? You were, you were yeah. teaming up with actors and you guys were just doing scenes and that was, he, yeah, so I'm I am a founder. I am no longer I sold it. I sold it uh in 20 late 2018 or 2019, whenever the pandemic just before the pandemic. So 2019. Um I I started a company called Rapid Reels, which is still around. Mm-hmm. And it is a content creation service for actors. So there's a lot of these now. Um, there's Rocket Reel. There's Create Your Reel. There's a there's a ton of other great companies out there that are also doing this. Um, but it, it's a it's a one stop shop, right, for actors that need content for their reels because no one's casting. Um, <laughs> now we're in a writer's strike. So so it's like it, it's kind of like uh, just the ability for actors to to showcase their talents in you know two to three minute scenes that we then condense even further down for the sake of their reel. So we we came to LA with with that startup and um and when we started there was really only one or two other competitors and we my my business partner and I we were we were sort of like eh, 
like we weren't charging for other scene partners. We were like, we had a small group of dedicated at what we called dedicated actors, people that we had worked with. We had vetted people that we knew were going to bring fucking excellence, you know, to a scene. And, and so we thought, well, fuck it. Like, let's do, let's give the, you know, other companies were charging for the quote unquote scene partner, so that they wouldn't have to get cross coverage. And we're like, well, fuck it. Like, this is our school, right? Like Mm -hmm. we, we didn't get to go to art school. We went to community college and we loved film and we wanted to keep doing that. And we had worked on that short film and come to LA a bunch. And so we were like, fuck it, let's go hard. Let's, let's just go above and beyond for these clients. And we sort of, we'd like to think that we set sort of a modern bar for what seeing, you know, content um, creators uh, for actors, are doing now, which is you just have to include the other actor. You have to, you have to do the cross coverage. You have to do the nice music and the edits and you have to be thoughtful about what, what you're there to do, which is yes, show off the actor, but make something that looks legit as legitimate as possible for the limited budget. Sure. So, sure. Yeah. Did you, so it's an interesting sort of business model. Did you, did you work with any actors that really found success by doing that? Like, is there a success yeah, story? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's several. Um, yeah. One, one of, one of the guys that had come in, Ross Marquard, uh, ended up becoming uh, a lead on the walking dead and is, is to this day, like he, he, he was with the show until the end. Um, he came on in like season four, um, he, he became a dedicated actor before his success. And, uh, remember when we would do a lot of stuff together, we'd hang out a lot also. He's just a cool guy. And, and, uh, we remember we were doing this. We, we, we had an old buddy from the Bay who worked for a big corporate office. And even though we said we would never do a corporate thing again, he offered us a lot of money to come back to the Bay and shoot this corporate video for him. And we were going to have sort of, no red tape and it was going to be a, a good time. And so we asked Ross and he, I remember when he was like, oh, we, I, I can't, and I can't tell you why <laughs> I can't tell you why, but things are happening. And, and, and we remember like the next month that like he had been announced on the walking dead and, and, and then he's been in uh, the, he was in the Avengers, Marvel's Avengers. Um, and so it was like, Oh shit, dude, like, Awesome. And and we've had several success stories. We've had several other clients that have gone on to do some pretty great things. Um, but yeah, the, the idea for us was, yeah, one hand, it, it's, it's providing service for actors that need it, right? But for us, for, for Michael and I, my business partner, um, we, we looked at it as like, you know, we, we always felt like we got better every project we did. And here we are doing, on average, three scenes per actor, right? So, so an actor comes in, they need three styles of scenes. They need like a procedural, like, you know, a procedural type drama. They need the CSI drama. They need a parks and rec comedy and they need a Christopher Nolan epic. Right. And so you're, you're taking these slices, you're taking these small slices of things that feel like they're from those movies. But one of the things that we knew right away, we, we wanted to do because my, my business partner was, is a writer. Yep. Said, look, the the secret sauce is not going to be in our camera work or the editing or any of the technical shit, which a lot of companies at that time 
2010, 2011, red was still a big new thing and finally becoming more accessible for filmmakers. Mm -hmm. And so there were a couple of companies that were like, Oh, come shoot with us. We shoot on the red. Yeah. And I used to, I used to get pissed because I was like, what the fuck is the red camera going to do for your career as an actor? You're not a fucking cinematographer. If you're a cinematographer and you're using these tools, that's one thing to do. Sure. Right. But I, I learned, I learned at at a early age that, you make the best of what you fucking have in front of you. And I think you get, you get better results if you make it, if you don't make it about the, the, the tools you don't have, but you look at a, any problem and say, okay, this is what I've been given. How do I make the best of it? And so for us, it was one hand, like providing a service, but it was a school. It was education. It was cool. In a single day, in a six hour day, we're going to do a comedy, a drama, and, uh, you know, and something else like a, a sitcom style. Right. So in, in the span of 10 years before I sold the company, I have well over 2000 scenes under my belt as an editor and every genre. And that really propelled me into smart being prepared for narrative, uh, narrative feature. Very smart too. Which is, which is where I'm at today. That's smart, man. See, you guys were being, <laughs> there's something about being creative is and trying to figure out your foothold when you're trying to get into this business, because, you know, we talk about it all the time on the show, there's no set path. And that was smart, man. Yeah. You also got to meet yeah. talent. You got to figure out how to work with talent. You got to be around talent yeah. a lot, which is smart. Yeah. Yeah. Dude. Luck, luck, lucky. Luck, I feel very fortunate because uh, the last, man, I'm totally blanking on it, but the, I think it was like episode 200 something, the, the last editor yeah. Uh, that you had on from England. Yes. I, I, re- I remember you guys talking about something that actually really connected with me, which is when you're starting a narrative, if you don't have narrative experience, the hurdle, the hurdle that you have to get over when, when you're hit with bad acting, yeah, dude. <laughs> when, when you're not prepared for, for people to not be at the level that you were hoping that they would be at. And, and, and I think that that is debilitating for a lot of new editors if they're not prepared for the fact that, that you're going to, you're not always going to have, you know, um, winning performances. And, and there's a variety of reasons why that they, they might be super talented, but got some, you know, yeah. bad script or bad direction sure. or whatever. But like either way in any narrative feature or short, you have to be prepared for if you're coming in from the outside, Sure, you know, coming in, you, you have maybe no control over, that kind of stuff. And you got to find a way to work with it. And I've met editors that are just starting out and and they're like, I don't know what the fuck to do. Like they just, their heads explode when they, when they hit that, when they hit that wall. Yeah. Well, dude, it's, it's, look, I think there are different stages, right? And you can, you know, jump in and disagree with me anytime. I I think that for me, when I started cutting, I started cutting a little bit earlier than you. And I started cutting uh, with an experimental program at the time, which was Sony Vegas. And Sony Vegas was one of the first, like, open-ended, we're not going to restrict what format you're dragging in the timeline. And- Mike, I'm going to stop I'm gonna stop you real quick. Just rewind it a little bit in terms of what you were talking about with Vegas, because you cut out. Like, oh. you cut out right before then. Just so the audience knows, Zencaster's <laughs> being a cocksucker today. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, so what I was saying is that when I started, I started uh, tooling around with an experimental program called Sony Vegas at the time, which didn't have Mm -hmm. any limitations to what formats were dragged into it. It was really just, it really became 
the uh, the format for what Premiere is today. Like it, they were yeah. like the originators with it. And so when I first started playing around, it was like technical. And this is the beginning of nonlinear editing. It likes like Media 100 was around. It was a very restrictive program. There were totally. other programs around that were just very, like, if you didn't do it right, it was like you had to convince this thing. You had to wake up and press the button and go, please do what I need you to do today and, yeah. and, and not have it fucking crash on you. So <laughs> when when you started, it was about learning this new format because wh when I got trained, I was trained on a, on a Steam Vec. So cutting mm -hmm. was like, you know, cutting physical film and hanging it on a bin mm -hmm. and doing that stuff. So this was a whole new format for me. And so playing with it, in the beginning, I was like, what can I get away with? How fast can I do cuts? What happens if I do single frame edits? And so I, it, when I started as an editor, I was very technically oriented. And I was like, okay, how does this work and what happens with it? Then as I started to make my own films and I started to put my things together, I was like, all right, I'll make a shot list. I'll storyboard things. I'll shoot coverage for those storyboards and I'll get actors. Now, I don't know how, I, I've said this on the show. Uh, I recently have learned uh, my mind has been open on how I work with actors and I can't even believe I called myself a director for the past 20 years. Okay. So in the, in the period prior to that, actors to me were these, you know, mythical little unicorns that I tried to like keep in yeah, one dark. place and, and, and I would hope that they would do something. And I, I really didn't know how to get it out of them. I would just hope that they would bring me something. And the, mm -hmm. the first couple of films that I had cut and the first couple of films that I had shot, they were very stagnant. And they were very, they, they, they just weren't fucking interesting from a directorial standpoint. And the actors uh, would be delivering their lines. They would deliver this line and they would deliver that line. And I would cut these pieces together the way I had them storyboarded out. And I go, well, I'm a fucking failure. <laughs> I kind of look at it and go, well, this is all on me because it's my storyboards. It's all my shit. And it just yeah. doesn't look good. And I remember... I was showing a, I was screening something for somebody and I, I I was embarrassed by it. And they watched it and I was like, man, this fucking sucks. And I and I just was back in the edit and I'm just playing with the edit. And I was scrolling yeah. through the heads and tails of clips, and the actors broke from whatever bullshit that I told them to do. They broke <laughs> and became a human being in between mm -hmm. like well, before we called action or after we called cut and the camera didn't cut. And so I was like, what if I take this shot? So I started pulling shots from heads and tails and texturing them into my pieces. Then my pieces started to become interesting. Then they started to totally. win. They started to win awards. Totally. You know? Yeah. 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 I, I connect with that a lot because, because that it, I, I had a very similar revelation um, early on that, that I remember thinking, God, so when we were doing these, these scenes for actors, man, there's, there's a lot of good stuff at the beginning and the, at the end that can sometimes be exactly what you need for like a reaction shot or reverse or whatever, you know, whatever. So yeah, man, I, I totally, I totally connect with that. Yeah. And it, look, I'm going to give myself a little bit of credit. It, it's not just all bad directing. It oftentimes it's just the stress of have of that performance and the actor trying to find that performance. And when you're doing stuff low budget, you don't have the, you know, it isn't a Fincher set where he's like, let's do this a hundred times right. until you figure it out. You know, right. Uh, you're, you've got usually one take, two takes before the locations person who you've somehow convinced to do this for $30 smartens <laughs> up and wants to kick you guys out of it. So, yeah. Um, you know, you, 
but but in that playing, what I ended up doing was I, I started to play with that, and then I was introduced to a lot of films from the seventies. This was young in my career, and I was introduced to um, a movie that Steven Sodenberg did called The Limey with Terrence Stamp. Those of you who are listening, you should go watch it. It's essentially him doing a remake of uh, Point Blank with Lee Marvin. Both those Mm -hmm. pieces have a really cool collage, cutting out of sequence style that has influenced most television that you guys see today. Um, Totally. And the freedom that I saw when I watched those pieces were you weren't concerned about continuity. You were actually cutting based upon emotion and you were pulling takes from wherever you can get those takes and collaging together an emotional piece that changed the game for me as an editor seeing that. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. We, we, we had the good four eyes. I, we, the, the class that I was in, um, back in the Bay area, our, our editing teacher somehow, I don't know how, but knew Walter merch and yeah. brought Walter in to talk to us. And Walter has just a, re- a renowned editor, right? Like he's, well, he did, um, yeah, for the, yeah, for the audience, so yeah, for, many classics. Yeah. Uh, explain it to the audience for the audience who may not know who Walter Murch is. Oh, uh, what, what has Walter <laughs> Murch done? Um, I, I mean, it, Jesus, <laughs> the list, <laughs> the list is long. Um, Besides Apocalypse Now to the Godfather movies, I think it was Godfather. Didn't he? Didn't he do that? I think so. Um, but also, like heavily involved with Lucas Films, heavily involved. What? Well, and and then and then heavily involved in in the pursuit of modern NLEs and modern editing, and you know, and not and and, and he. This is a guy that started. You know, this is a guy that started in the most linear ways and was a huge advocate for, you know, just modernizing just everything, right? But he worked, I mean, I think he did THX 1138 with George Lucas when he was in college, right? So, yep. so, so you start to see, like, you start, and you always heard it, you always hear this, but like the people sort of come up together, right? Um, but when you start to look at the way things used to be and, and all the freedoms we have now, I remember when he came in and he was talking about it, he said that the technology is always going to change. He's like, that, that, is, that is going to ch- change every month, every year. He's like, there is no world where you're going to be always on top of the latest and greatest. You're, you're going to think you are, and then in a month, something new has come out that that just will blow you away. And there's always an evolution there. But he said, so the technical is important, but he he talks a lot about his priorities in, in edit are emotional first and technical second. Um, 100%. Technical might even be third. Because because you're right. Like when you're talking about your own stuff, right? Like if you're if you're not editing from a place of uh, emotional connection, how the fuck is the audience going to connect with anything that, that you're doing, right? Because you you have to put yourself a, as best as you can as, as an audience member. You have to try and think, okay, when I'm sitting down and I don't know all the inside jokes of, of this film and, and all the, the story beats that only I as a writer, director, editor know, you know, when you, when you separate yourself from that and try to see it from the outside looking in, do right. those things – 
do are those things still relevant? I think that that was something that you know that I I've learned over the years and. Well, you know, um, well, dude, yeah. you're the audience. So like when you're the right. editor, you're the first audience, like you really are. And the, the thing that took, took me a while and, to, and a craft that you need from your editor is to be able to sit past all of the shit that went into making that movie and even be able to sit further back from everything that he or she just did to make this edit, because you're essentially watching it for beats. You're watching it for the audience beats. And so um, that's one of the most hard, the only way you can get there is with experience and time and cutting time. You can't cheat that. There's no cheating that. Mm -mm. No, absolutely not. And, 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 you know, going sort of back to, you know, what we did at Rapid Reels for years, preparing me for the eventual, you know, features yeah. that, that I started working on and, uh, and the various short films and, and to the to continued music videos, cause they're fun, of course. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, what, what is, when is a music video not fun when you're, when you actually, I, I, I look at it now as like, I fucking own the room when I go in and, and I'm, I'm bidding for a, a video and I come to the table with ideas. And I, if I, if I direct anything, I will only typically be interested in directing music videos because it's such a visual, yes. um, visual editorial um, medium that I, not that I can't direct actors, but but I don't I don't want the weight of that responsibility on a feature or a short. I, I enjoy enjoy the the collaborative element of of being, you know, the the puzzle, yes. you know, the puzzle maker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, and that that is. Why music videos is a great learning place because it yeah. oftentimes really is weighed heavily on the tech and the technical. Yeah. And, you know, if you're cutting, you're usually cutting, you're learning rhythm, which I think mm-hmm. is really important. I, I think a lot of young editors don't figure out rhythm. And yeah. um, I think there's a rhythm to everything. There's a rhythm to music. There's a way to cut music. And it, strangely, I think a lot of folks don't realize this when you're cutting music videos it isn't about just cutting on the beat every time. It's about yeah. when you cut on the beat, when you start, when you establish a rhythm, and then when you decide to break a rhythm. And when you break a rhythm, you set a new tone and a new rhythm, so it keeps it interesting for the audience. I've had mm-hmm. I've had a lot of people watch our videos and say like that went by really quick. That's because I spent a lot of time building the rhythm for you. <laughs> so yeah. like if yeah. if if I'm just cutting every on that snare drum hit every fucking time. I really can't ride that cut on a snare drum hit for longer than, I don't know, 15 seconds max. Because then that, then you're just like, I get it. They're going to cut here again. They're going to cut here again. Yeah. I, I start to see the rhythm. You're, you're consistently breaking that without, unless it's intentional, you're consistently uh, breaking that without uh, breaking the video itself. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but I think that also plays into, I know it does, it plays into scenes with actors. There's a, there, there's a rhythm to how conversations are had and how you volley the power of that conversation, the interest of that conversation between people. And yeah. it, it comes all the way down to like, how many frames do you cut away? Like how long do you last on the last person's word? Am I, am I cutting to the other person before it finishes a, st- a sentence? And why am I doing so? Like it, it's very fucking complicated when you're doing uh, that. 
I, I was I was I was really impressed in in my earliest days when I'd see, I see I saw a documentary. Uh, I think it was the art of the cut or it was just called cut or something. Mm-hmm. And it was about editing. It was about the magic of editing. And and I remember, I don't remember what movie it was, but they were, there was a sequence that was talking about this sort of long dramatic scene that the editor went in and just sort of did L and J cuts to sort of cut the air and have them cut each other off. So it, it just sounded more intense and then they'd get this sort of breath. And and I remember thinking, oh, that's so cool! Like that, that's so neat when you think about it. And I, at that time, I didn't know how to do anything. Whoa, whoa, my, hold, my first hold edit, on, hold my on, first hold edit on. was literally a music video, right? Hold on, so, hold so on. Let I me learned. let me let me interrupt yeah. you. Hold on, because you said L and J cuts. <laughs> Let's pretend like people don't know what those are. What is an L and J cuts? Yeah, of course. So so those are letters in the <laughs> alphabet, and if you look at the letters in those alphabet, they move in certain directions. The, those directions. Uh, are representative in editing um, when when we when we want to stack or shorten or lengthen things we can we can L or J cut it's really just it dependent on the direction that you're trying to go in yep um, if we want to overlay audio shorten things have thing you know there's there's infinite uses for the L and the, and the J cut. Um, yeah, and, and, to, and uh, to, let me help out a little bit yeah. too to further break Please. it down. If you're <laughs> so, the simplest way of doing it is oftentimes this when you think of cutting, like if you're going to sit down and do the most basic edit, and this is something when you go back to cutting film, cutting was just very simplistic. You'd have someone saying mm-hmm. something, you'd put a cut and go to a two shot after that. You'd have someone saying, you put a cut when they finish talking and they go to the other person. What you can mm-hmm. do is you can have someone halfway through a statement while I keep talking right here, I cut to the other person and I continue totally. talking and that smooths the edit down. You start to feel like you're in the space more because if I'm cutting every time we talk, you're noticing the edit more. And there's <laughs> yeah. that that there's a reason for doing that too. But L and J is a like you said, is a great way to condense time. You can actually yeah. condense what people are saying because when you cut to the other person, you can then cut out the ums and the ahs and whatever the fuck else is there. Yeah. Um, They're great for transitions too. Yes. Audio transitions without the need for uh, shitty crossfades. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's a huge t- It's a huge tool. And shitty crossfades, we call them shitty crossfades because it's like, hey, I'm the editor. I'm here. <laughs> You're just doing this crossfade between two yeah. people. Or the yeah, Spielberg yeah. or the uh, Lucas fucking like <laughs> transition zooms and shit. I, I love, I love, I love, I love transitions and I love crossfades when when appropriate, right? And there there is a time and a place for any of that. Um, yes, I, I yeah, often yeah. often tongue in cheek. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's very it's very old. They they feel very dated to me um, when, but also emotionally they don't always feel appropriate. I, I typically hold on crossfades. Um, unless I need to establish the feeling that time has elapsed, yes, um, which is a, which is a good way of obviously doing it. Usually, a crossfade into a time lapse or a or an establishing shot of the next location, and and then hard cutting into the next scene. All the while, the audio is you know is uh, is J you know J cut you know Jing into the the scene that we're hard cutting into, so that there's. You know, um, 
Yeah, just a, just an audio setup before your. For instance, and I, like I keep doing this because it's a very visual thing, and we have to talk about it audio wise. Like, it, yeah, let's yeah. say that after you and I finish having this conversation, I'm about to cut outside, and there's there's birds and there's trees outside. You may start to f- to filter in those birds before that cut happens. You may start to filter in exactly. traffic sounds before that happens. So I, you may still have a shot of me sitting here in front of the microphone and start to hear birds, and that is the transition into the next bit. So it's almost like you're you're easing. That in itself is a crossfade audio-wise. You're easing your your audience into the next moment, into the next scene, which is interesting. And then you can. Re- I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad you have all this information because because uh, I'm. I don't. <laughs> I just know this stuff, man. I like. I know this stuff now. It becomes a like, second nature, and it's one of those things. Where I'm like, oh yes, yes. You have to tell people what these are, and <laughs> yeah. I, I've got a great AE that that works with me that just knows all this shit too. So I, it's just I'm not normally in a position where I'm like talking about what an elf and a J cut is. Dude, don't like, worry, man. It's my job. So I appreciate you, man. <laughs> uh, dude, I'm the fucking host. <laughs> it's my job. It's my job to run the show here, man. <laughs> yeah right it's time to take a moment and talk about the tools right it's time to talk about the gear that i use and so many of you are constantly asking mike what kind of cameras do you shoot with you know what kind of uh editing system are you using like what's the stuff you got uh how can we put that into our ai (laughs) and replicate your work. Well, let me save you the effort, okay? Here are some real-life prompts for you. Uh, If you are someone that uh, is uh, doing editing and you're in the post-production world, or if you want to build an edit machine for your house that is powerful, you want to freelance out of your home, I highly suggest you build yourself a Puget system, right? I know so many of you are like, well, no, shouldn't I go to the same company that I have for my cell phone (laughs) in my pocket? I mean, they're expensive, right? That means they're good. No, that's not the case. Most of the time when you're spending that kind of money, you're paying for the unboxing experience, you're paying for the advertising, you're paying for the promotion. Let's be real. You're paying for the snacks for the cult. (laughs) That is that company. And so at the end of the day, I suggest you look for a company yourselves that builds a solid tool that works for you as the artist, that you aren't beholden to their structure, right? We've been talking about companies and monopolies and everything for a while on the show. I highly suggest you support smaller companies. You support companies that give a shit about us as artists, and you support companies that build tools that can be upgraded and that can continue to work for you for over 10 years, right? I have a Puget system that still runs perfectly and I'm post 10 years on it at this point. You know what I mean? Build yourself a PC, go to PugetSystems.com. They build PCs based upon the software you use. So let's say for instance, you're running Premiere or maybe you're editing in a Resolve. Uh, You can go there, click on whatever software you're using and they will offer you suggestions. Uh, on how to build your machine and if you want you can just say to them hey Mike what's the machine that Mike's editing on because I've got a monster edit machine which I love this machine consistently running it all the time I mean it's on like 24 hours a day so head on over to Puget Systems 
or go to Puget Systems on Instagram and let them know that I sent you. Tell the guys over there that I sent you. Uh, they love to drink beer. You might want to say, what kind of beer should I be drinking? <laughs> I hate that. I put that in the ad read. But I love those guys, man. So head on over to PugetSystems.com and check them out. Also supporting the show are our friends over at Fujifilm. If you're looking for a sweet camera for your package, maybe a second shooter, maybe you are a photographer and a filmmaker at the same time, and you're looking for a photography camera that shoots medium format that has really great um, low light resolution, right? Really great low grain, high ISO stuff. Check out Fujifilm, the GFX100. S is the one that uh, Gene has been shooting with. It's the one that we love for medium format stuff. And then the HX2S, I always forget their numbers on the HX2S, is the video camera that we've been using. Um, so if you've seen any of the Boohoo Man that I've posted, uh, like the Jamaica stuff, Gina shot all that on that XH2S Fujifilm camera. And she used internal looks on that, believe it or not. Um, so the stuff looks really beautiful. Uh, the footage looks great. The color profiles are phenomenal. And if you're smart, you also team up with Photo Deox and get yourself a lens adapter. Then you can mount PL lenses on it. You can mount lenses from other camera manufacturers on that same camera. Um, and uh, it really brings the new technology into your older package because lenses are the way to go. I, I talk about this consistently. Lenses is what to invest in. They are the eyes of the world that you're that you're setting up. They're the eyes of the audience as they sort of peek through this doorway that you're creating. And as we're talking about lenses, and if you are using your Fujifilm camera and your Photo Deox adapter, maybe, just maybe, you want to try out some big-time cinema lenses. Lenses that are too expensive to own. The lenses that are used to shoot the shows that you love on Netflix, all you Netflix watchers right? Uh, you got to make a relationship with your local rental house. And if you're in Los Angeles, I highly suggest you hang out with the guys over at Boca Rentals. They are determined to form relationships with young filmmakers, young cinematographers, and their inventory of lenses will make you drool. You'll have to bring a change of shirt because you'll have drool all over the front of your shirt. <laughs> when you go in there to get these lenses so i love boca rentals the past three jobs that we've done i've rented the camera package from them um, and they've supported us they've supported the show so check them out it's bocarentals.com or go check them out on instagram at boca rentals where they post a bunch of fun stuff they show you like what lenses were used to shoot this and that they're really great so when you go in there tell them you listen to it on our show at love of the process and they'll give you a thumbs up and you'll be part of the club. You know what I mean? All right, let's get back to the show. Um, well, speaking of sound, and, you know, let's go back yeah. to um, Merch again, right? I think the reason why he was such an amazing editor was that, that he was also a sound mixer and a sound editor. And sound is such mm -hmm. an important aspect of mm -hmm. cutting. And, do, like, do you find yourself 
when you're cutting a sequence, are you using temp yeah. music? Are you using temp sound yeah. effects? Are you hunting for yeah. sound effects? Like, what's your deal? Hundred percent. Yeah. I, I. I mean, again, we can we can trace it all the way back to that first music video edit, right? Like my 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 initiation into this world was editing two music videos in the span of a week. So so I was intrigued by how the music mixed with a, an edit on a beat or late or early or whatever, how that like affected me visually, right? When I was watching it. And I remember, and I remember thinking on some of the first shorts that I would do like, Oh, here's an opportunity to put in some sound. And at the earliest days, we didn't have sound designers. Like we didn't have those sure. in our back pocket. We didn't know anyone that could do that. So, so I was, I was doing the shooting and the editing and the sound design myself. So I spent a lot of time in the, in the audio world. And I, and I spent a lot of time learning the importance of, you know, at least basic mixing. I, I don't do it today. Um, I, I have other people that I, I call upon for, for like a pro for mix that on any yeah. project yeah. pro mix people that have spent their life and their laser focused on that career path. Cause it's, it is technically it, is also technically, technically crazy. its own fucking job. Yeah. And, and the days of Walter merch where, you know, where he could do all that. I mean, listen, if I had, if I had pro tools experience, um, I, I might, but it, it just seems like a lot. And, and that's not, that's not where my mind goes. Typically I like to, I like to build backbones enough that, um, uh, and guideposts, right? So I like to put in, for instance, on, on two lives, um, or devil's night, the, the movie that I'm, I'm working on now. So like I, I'll put in enough that then when we're handing it off to sound designer, yep. that they don't have to think hard about what they're doing that that the that the understanding is all there on devil's night there's a lot of fight sequences there's, it's kind of goofy right like it's a monster sure. monster movie in the vein of like a sharknado so it's kind of a goofy film but like there was a lot of action sequences so that was one of those things i was like you know i don't want to trust a sound design not that the sound designer's not perfectly capable but the budget is super low sure and there's a lot of dialogue cleanup that needs to happen and i think we're more valuable to have a sound designer that can do that so let me just put in the majority of the fight sequence sure uh, audio design that makes sense but man. Unmixed, unmixed so that when he gets it he's just sitting and he's like oh shit cool it's already done he can then start mixing and add and subtract what what doesn't work for him i do so. i do the same thing man i do the same thing i like yeah I've talked about it on the show before, uh, but I've I sh used to share a studio space when I started with one of the best sound mixers because I'm from Boston. So one of the best sound mixers in Boston. He's now like uh, Ben Affleck's sound mixer and all that kind of shit. Uh, and he Amazing. also did post. And so you know we're unemployed. And I would spend time whenever I wasn't working, hanging out with him. And mm -hmm. he, I worked with him to do. Uh, he did a kung fu feature, and that was a lot of fun. So you're like breaking fucking you know, vegetables and like crunching things and <laughs> doing hits. And then you sort of understand the power of recording your sound effects as, as opposed to like over processing sound effects. And so mm -hmm. now I'm in a boat. So really the only person I cut for these days is my girlfriend, Gina, who does a lot of music video work and, and uh, fashion films. And so when I Amazing. talk, when I talk to her and she fucking ropes me in, I'm like, it's the boyfriend thing where she's like, <laughs> you got to do it. <laughs> And so uh, 
I did a recently did a piece, and those of you who follow me on Instagram have seen it. I did a piece for uh, Boohoo Man, which was in Jamaica, and she went down there and shot with um, a bunch of these like uh, Jamaican motorcycle gang kids, and it was fun. And she just had all this footage, like a bunch of footage. And so when you're cutting together a fashion film or a music video, it the story falls on the editor most of the time, especially totally. for a lot of these shooters that are shooting multiple things. And they're like, I got you great coverage. And that's usually what she'll come and say to me, like, you bitched me out the past three times on how <laughs> much my coverage sucked. I got you so much more coverage. And I'm like, how much more? <laughs> There's a point where you're like, did you get me too much yeah. coverage? Yeah. Um, and so what I do when I sit down with her is we'll start, our conversation with her will be like, what do you want it to sound like? And it's, it's generally like, what is the music going to sound like? What's that vibe? And then we sort of breeze through footage real quick. I, I scrub through it at high speed and I go, I want to hear dogs. I want to hear motorcycles. And she's like, I want birds. I want this. And so before I even start cutting, I'll go through my library of sounds, pull all these sounds in, look for sounds that really inspire me, and then find that one piece of footage which if you guys watch that piece, this is like motorcycle skid out with a ring, ring, ring. And I found this sound that was the ring. And it was like, that is the emotional basis for this entire edit. And it was because of the sound. It wasn't because awesome. of the footage. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's, that's fascinating to me to hear, right? Cause every editor that I've ever talked to or director or creative, right? Like they all have different, there's, there's, there's so many different ways people do it. And, and because I started with music and temp, uh, you know, I carried that for a long time until I did enough scenes narratively that, that I no longer felt like I needed that because they're, that when you, when you're doing, when you're doing, you know, uh, as many scenes as I did over the course of 10 years, you, you very quickly, the, the appeal of putting music on every single scene when it's an emotional scene, doesn't, doesn't necessarily carry weight. Sometimes, especially when they're great actors, you just sure. have to watch them fucking act. Right. Sure. Um, for docu stuff, uh, you know, docu stuff. I love it is, it is overwhelming and very, a lot more difficult for me to do docu stuff these days, just because disorganized footage without clear cut, boundaries of what we're trying to do um are are these days a little more overwhelming for me not that i can't do it i i thrive with any challenge i don't believe that that impossible is a is a word in in yeah but in but doc, this, in, in this realm dude but, but but doc stuff doc stuff is insane i i started doing doc stuff too and i basically was like i don't want to do this anymore <laughs> because do, yeah. do, documentary work with narratives all the writing happens prior, right? And of yeah. course, things are adjusted. But with docs, there's no writing prior. There's an idea that's put together. Let's go out and get this footage. And then it's this, especially if you're working for somebody as a doc, as, a, as an editor for a documentary, it's mm -hmm. kind of a fucking organizational nightmare. And you're going right. through all this footage and you're hunting for a narrative and you're transcribing stuff so people are reading it on scripts and you're not really yep. the, the 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 filmmaker's not looking at all the footage that you're looking at and then they're trying to like create a narrative based upon text on a page and you're like yeah but in that one thing that you're reading off that page you know he's got his finger in his ass you know you're, like I can't use that <laughs> that clip that you're talking about right right uh, it's it's a hard dude I think editors deserve a hell of a lot more credit for 
documentaries, docudramas, and even the bullshit reality TV, you know, Kardashian oh, yeah. stuff. Man, that's all editors. My 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 buddy Andy Palmer, who's graduated to directing these days, and um, I think he moved up to Toronto. I think he moved to Toronto last year. Yeah. Anyway, he started in reality TV. He he was one of the co- lead editors on The Flavor of Love on VH VH1 back oh, in cool, the. Man back in the the mid 2000s and i remember when i met him um it, it just we we he he's inspiring right cuz he he was he was a person that really said what i think I, i've heard you say before you know people can poo poo on the on the you know reality editors but man those those people have it probably harder than anyone yeah but each of them, every time I've talked to a reality editor, I've, I've, talking to, uh, I've spoken to editors from uh, MasterChef and, the, you know, uh, Andy, who's done a variety of shows over the years. And the one thing that they all said is you sort of get your own episode. You get your own episode and it's up to you to sort of make it work. And I, there's an appeal there for me, right? Because, because that is sort of uh, the editing dream, right? You don't have someone breathing over your, you. You will have someone breathing over your neck eventually, but, but your goal, the goal is make, make an hour long program, make it whatever, whatever that task. Sure. Is. Yeah. Uh, and that, that can't do anything but strengthen you when you come out of that. Now, now what I have done also <laughs> is, is spoken to these, these people and they tell like how difficult it is to get out of reality because on one hand the money is good, but the hours suck and and it's it, there's no love and it's just it's sort of like eating fast food right like constantly. But it's one of those gigs that it's it's hard to to walk away from and, and graduate to narratives or, or other things and um and there's a whole another skill set you have to learn even going from reality to narrative right uh, scripted stuff. Well, I so. mean, th- there's a whole different vibe in the room. Between those, totally. like, like you feel like with, uh, with, um, you know, the narrative, I'm sorry, the documentary TV show stuff that that's just a fucking, that, it's a factory that's pumping out stuff and you got to get it out as fast as possible. And hopefully you're working on a show that's got a formula. Like, uh, we were just watching Gina, my girlfriend and I were watching the new queer eye season and mm-hmm. they, that they started in Boston. They actually, they were in my old office space. I bought it after they left. So the original production company that did Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, and people forget that that's what it was called. Um, yeah. They, uh, they have a formula. And so when you watch that mm-hmm. show, you see the formula. You see it. Like if we laid them out in the timeline and you laid out four or five episodes, specific mm-hmm. points, it would all be the same thing. Here's where the guys make fun of the guests and they go in the room and they try on their outfits. Here's where yep. they talk about food. And so having a, f- a specific formula like that is helpful because then you're not floundering. You're not all over the fucking place. Um, but uh, the art of crafting hours and hours of just footage of, you know, people pa- painting walls and people, you know, uh, trying on clothes and then dealing with the egos of the talent that are on the show and then dealing with the egos of the showrunners and the producers that are on the show. It's fucking yep. insane, dude. And as opposed yep. to doing a feature, which is subtly different where I think features are more filmmaker focused. And so if you're in a room with a filmmaker at that point, you're that filmmaker's therapist Yep. <laughs> because that filmmaker is yep. usually depressed. 
when they get in the edit room and they're like, this is all the footage we got for that fucking scene. Are you fucking kidding me? You know what I mean? Um, and generally with the director and dealing, you know, you're a therapist for that director. And then you're yep. generally uh, dealing with producers and you're sort of going back and forth between the director and the producers because the producers are usually writing you for money and time. And then <laughs> if you're dealing with some sort of post-production supervisor who is also managing all the other departments that you need the footage for and you need the stuff for, um, I think those are the differences between the two, if you agree. I Yeah, I do. And, and But I learned from corporate days and just all the shit clients. We, we had some shit clients and we had a lot of great clients. We had a lot of shit clients. One of the things that I learned was, was how to talk about money and time, mm. you know, uh, what my, my time and, and, and money was worth. And, but one of the things that I tell young editors and one of the things that I think is lost on a lot of people, especially now that, I mean, here we are doing a podcast through fucking Google Chrome and, and, and the technology has just allowed everyone to be a content creator now, whereas it, it, you know, that was a little bit more of a walled garden, you know, before our, before my time, right? Sure. That, that I think that now you have a lot of editors that are editing YouTube videos, which is in its own right, a fucking skill, right? Like that, but, but the, but the skill of like dealing with, executives and people directors and and people in a room who just want to say ah oh, i don't like that you know i make a change here or that that's hard and I, I sometimes i'll do editing uh meetups and stuff like that just whatever i can find right yep. and and you meet you meet editors of all different types um that that are just a lot of them are uncomfortable around people they're they're uncomfortable dealing with people um and i've I've always, I think because of the other stuff that I did, I, I've always been okay with dealing with people. I, what I've learned over the years is just be, be confident in, in what it is you're saying and don't bullshit them. Yes. Don't bullshit because the moment you start bullshitting, you're, you're, you are setting an expectation. And if you're, if you're not talk, if you are not leading that conversation, uh, in in regards to the edit, now there there's a time and place to shut the fuck up and let the uh, other adults in the room talk. Yep. But when so and so says something stupid, it is up to me to say, "I'm sorry, I gotta I gotta stop you." I think you know I don't think that's gonna work, and here's why. Yep. Okay, maybe it will, maybe it won't. If it, if it's a maybe, maybe it will, maybe it won't. Especially when you're working with the director, you give the director whatever the fuck they want because. Ultimately, they it is their responsibility to get this thing out the door, and it is your responsibility to to guide the filmmaker to to ultimate success. Right? That's the way I look at it. Yeah. So, so there is not a single edit. There's not a single edit in any film or short or music video that I do that doesn't have a hundred percent intention behind it and an explanation ready to go. So, if you say, "Oh, why did you why did you cut to the master wide?" before you cut to the close up or vice versa i can tell you exactly why i did that and and I, and i will and i'm not bullshitting you either like i i put a lot of thought into again and it's taken a lot a lot of years to learn this mm -hmm. how to how to separate myself from filmmaker edit mode and try to observe it as a viewer sitting in the theater or on their couch or, you know, the end user. Right. So, so being able to 
being able to learn that is is important, but also being able to set the expectation honestly um, is also really really important when you're when when you're editing anything for anybody. Yeah, I agree with all that, man. And and if if you're listening, you want if if you're afraid of producers, if you're afraid to communicate with directors, if you're well, maybe you're not. Maybe it's directors that you're you're getting in this business for. You're like, I want to work with a director. I want to create a narrative. I want to create this piece. But you're afraid of producers and you're you're afraid of post production supervisors. Here's a tip that I can give you that will uh, change your relationship with them. The first thing I would say, one hundred percent, is be incredibly organized. Incredibly organized. And yeah. every time I do this every day, I have a ritual where I'll start my project every day. I, I create a brand new project with that day's date on it. Then I'll go into my sequences. I'll take my sequence and duplicate my sequence with a brand new date on it. And anytime I do anything major, I duplicate my sequence and I have a brand new fucking uh, label on it and date and time on it. Because what's going to happen is, especially when you're doing narratives, you're going to have like maybe a director goes, let's go off on this fucking tangent. And you go off on this tangent, you go completely in this other direction and it's great, except he misses that thing that you did before. You need to know exactly where that thing is. You need to know how to find that thing. You need to how to put it back instantly. Or a producer may come in and go, we screened three weeks ago on this date, this cut. And that was great. And there was this moment in that you need to be able to find that. Or six years later, they're going to come back to you and ask you about something specific. And you're going to need to, especially with music videos, you're going to need to have those catalog correctly. You're going to need to have a system in place for yourself. And if you can do that, if you can do that fast, efficiently, and be the savior, because most of these people come back and go, ah, we're fucked. And you go, no, we're not. Then you'll be the hero in the room consistently. Totally. Consistently. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I stand by that a hundred percent. Um, and, and it, but look, it also, it, it takes a while to learn those skill sets. You have to, you have to break some eggs, right? Like you have to, you have to lose content. You have to, you have to be at the other end of that angry person sometimes yeah. because you fucked their project. And I don't, I, 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 I don't say that lightly. I mean, it, it really is important to fail in order to succeed. Like yeah. you have to, you have to understand what that looks and feels like you and 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 it's inevitable you will you there you're you could be the most technically sound person and then one day something's going to happen that is unexpected but it's how you pivot right it's how you learn how to pivot in in all things and and i um yeah i definitely i i'm good at pivoting um and i and part of that is part of that is again the years of not having uh, you know i'm not I'm not shitting on anyone that was fortunate enough to go to an amazing film school and have a proper education. That wasn't me. We didn't have that. I didn't have that money. I didn't have that yeah, advantage. But dude, what is a, um, what is a proper education these days? Honestly, and especially with that. Oh, well, sure. Yeah, with, sure. I mean, YouTube. Well, look, YouTube one of my one question. of my best friends. One of my best friends is the cinematographer on Bridgerton. And she was the cinematographer on Grey's Anatomy last season, you know, the last season and the last two seasons. And 
she she went to AFI, right? Like she she to me is an example of someone who didn't have a lot of money coming up, but but you know took a loan out, went to school, and it paid off, right? Like it paid off for her career, and she's having huge success right now. Alicia Robbins, I'm gonna name drop because she's fucking rad. Do it, do it. Um, but like, but like the that is not the case for a lot of us, right? But in the case of Alicia, and this is a great, this is actually a great tidbit that sort of ties into everything that we've talked about. Alicia went to AFI and then for the next 15 years had fucking nothing. Like she did shorts. She worked with us at uh, plate pros. Like she, she worked, she, she did the same stuff that we all do to survive and get whatever we can. And, and we were also, we happen to be neighbors. Um, we, we would sit on the porch and I remember we were sitting on the porch drinking some whiskey, just watching, you know, watching our neighborhood as we do. <laughs> and, and she, she just, we were just having one of those come to Jesus, like, you know, I, this might be it. Like I might not have anything ever pop up and I think I have to be okay with that. And you do, right? Like you have to be okay with wherever you're at in life. The next, like not even a month later, man, like she, she does a short film she does a short film for like literally no budget, helping yep. friends out. Yep. She just thought, you know, I'm going to submit this to the Emerging Cinematographers um, Awards, yep. like uh, part of her guild, because yep. she is union. Submitted it. She got Emerging Cinematographer of the Year, I think 2018 or something. And overnight, man, like she got offers to go do shoot the pe- uh, uh, for the people, which uh, you know was I think only one season she was like a, a B unit um, uh, cinematographer. And then she, but she was in Shondaland and then they brought her into Gray's and then she took over for the lead cinematographer at Gray's so that, good, that last year. Yeah. And then from there Bridgerton, right? So she's having this holy shit moment where her career is taking off, but it came from no expectations and it came from doing the hard work where there was no money sure because she was passionate and she she believed in herself 100 and but she knows how to ask for the things that she wants and she doesn't take shit for it and that's one of the things that i i also feel in an edit pay i i'm i'm the biggest supporter i believe that you have to be you have to be your cheerleader to your director and your and your core team right as an editor producers you don't know are going to come in and fucking tell you what's wrong with it. Yep. My goal is to make the director look good and not throw them under a bus ever. And in the case of, you know, something like, um, you, you know, two lives in Pittsburgh with Brian Silverman, first time director, he's also the lead actor and he produced this feature in the middle of fucking COVID. And <laughs> so he had, he, he had experience in the industry, but he had never sat in an edit bay. He had never gone through that process. So I had this really unique situation where I, I could get a lot of the things that I wanted and, and, you know, and, and, and push for a lot of things that he was really open to just cause he's a creative. But then it was great because he had some amazing, he, we have amazing producers on this that aren't assholes that are also amazing creatives. And one of the producers was also the cinematographer on it. So they knew the movie they wanted to make. And then when I would give them a cut, they were like, ah, this, 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 but it was really, really smooth yeah. because I was working with a ton of creatives, which that might not always be the case, but you have to learn how to be an advocate for yourself and your team when you know something is incorrect and, and you have to sell it. And sometimes they're going to say, well, I, I want it in anyway. And yeah. you have to ask yourself, you know, okay, is this a job that I just have to do that and take the check? 
or is this a job that I want to have a debate about because I actually fucking believe in it? Right. And, and until you're in that situation, you just, you just can't know. Yeah. Right. You always got to be careful. And in the edit room, it's like, you always feel like in the edit room, especially if you, you're working with clients specifically. And this was something that when I was doing commercial cutting and I would be in the room with all the, all the agency and all the people, they're all sitting on your back end. That's where the shit talking happens. That's really where it starts. <laughs> and you can hear it. Like, it's if you're the director, you're working with the editor, you're usually sitting up at the front. And in the back, there's this gaggle of folks that are back there just shit talking everything. And, <laughs> and uh, you, you got to be careful because you, you don't know whose toes you're yeah. going to step on. But at the same token, what I used to do, <laughs> what I used to do as a cinematographer, because I had been in the edit room. There were moments, or if I was just a shooter on a commercial, there were moments where stuff would go wrong on set, and I knew that I'd get blamed for it. And more often than not, the producer would, instead of you know taking credit for something that would go wrong, they would go, well, that was that camera operator's fault, so ne- we're never going to hire them again. And so everybody would like shit on that camera person. And I had been in the edit, and I'd seen that, and I would often just speak up and be like, no, 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 it's because of this and this and this. And what I started to do as a shooter when stuff went wrong, I would just go up to the, I would grab the microphone, I'd go up to the microphone, and go, okay, so you guys know what's happening here right now. I'll tell you exactly what's happening. So I would tell them in the edit room yeah. <laughs> what was yeah. going wrong because the, the producers, you know, when they're in there with their client, they don't want to, <laughs> you know, they don't want to lose their fucking client. So the first thing they'll do is they'll throw the laborers under the bus. And just be like these these people fucked it up, and you're like, actually, the producer's on his phone over there in the corner right now. <laughs> I, it's so funny, man. Like I don't I don't do that, and I, and I I've never I've never felt an interest in doing that because I know I know what it is to get blamed for things that are not your your fault um, because people are lazy and they don't want to take accountability. The people at the top that don't want to take accountability, but I look at I try to look at things from the perspective of. You know, we have bad days, but look, we're, I when I open up an edit, when I open up a project for the first time and my AE and I are going through the footage and starting the organizational process and you're watching every take and, you know, because oftentimes they don't have the budget to have us out there on location while they're shooting. Uh, there, there's a tendency with editors, I think, sometimes to say, oh, well, I just, I didn't get this. Yeah. I didn't get that. Oh, it's not going to work. It's like, okay, so I look at it from the perspective that what we have is all we're ever going to get. Now, hopefully, they'll go get pickups. I always have my list of, ah, fuck, if only we had this or only had a little bit longer. The first feature I did, my buddy David McAfee was the director. I gave him so much shit in the edit bay because because it was his first feature. He had only done it you know, a short or two before, yep. and he was completely like, like over his head, right? With, with a, a feature, but he did a great job. And our first feature, he would just immediately up, they get to the end of their line and he'd say cut. And yeah. so in the edit bay, I had like zero fucking tails, like, like heads <laughs> or tails. That thing we were talking about at the beginning where you were like, ah, oh, when I learned yes. that I can take these little moments at the beginning or end and use them. I didn't have that on my first feature. Cause, cause he was notorious for just, okay, cut. And then, every, of course, when you, as an actor, you hear cut, you're out of it. Like you, 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 you don't, 
necessarily linger. So that was that was a challenge, and I gave him so much shit. I was just like, dude, I was like, I love you, but you're just making these <laughs> transitions harder. You're making these yeah. little moments that we have to extend harder because because you're you're cutting them off instead of letting them sweat a little bit. But he learned it. He learned about it when he goes into it, you know, when we started doing our next shorts and other projects together, that wasn't a problem anymore, you know, but he had to learn that because he didn't have that experience. And I think, so I, I try to give grace to any project that I'm on that like, look, I'm, I'm here. I'm here to, yeah. to make an experience for people. And that's, that's the job that they've hired me to do. So instead of wasting time bitching about the things that I don't have, I'm going to look at it as that's the only shit I'm ever going to get. Yep. Let's 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 rock it, man! Like let's make this thing, and that little positivity, that little adjustment. Uh, when I, when I, you know, work with a director for the first time. Oh, I'm so sorry, or a producer. Oh, we didn't get this. We didn't get that. I'm so sorry. It's like don't apologize. Like yeah. we got this shit. Like that. Thank you for acknowledging. But it doesn't matter. Like what what we have is what we have. We're gonna make the best we can with it, and I think we'll cross that bridge creatively when we start running into that problem. Yeah, man. And dude, it's it's hard to find footage that you can't do shit with. Like I feel exactly. like I like I've had people show up with stuff and they're like this is trash and I'm like give me 40 minutes. And then you you, <laughs> right. you step out of the back end of it and because I wasn't connected to it emotionally in any way, yeah. I'm able to go yeah. look what I did. I reversed this and I moved this and I did that and I did holy mm-hmm. shit. And you go, yeah, there it is, man. So it's a great feeling. Yeah, it's awesome. It, it, that's with time. Like I, I'm now an editor that I can sit down confidently with anything. Or if I am asked to come in and, and give notes, and I've been asked by some large directors to come in and give notes on their cuts, I can go in there completely unemotionally as an editor and just go like, what, what if, what if, what if you took that scene that you're so attracted to and you put that at the beginning of the film and then take this scene and put it after and then start cutting from there? Like do that. And sometimes you just need that person. And I love to do this for my filmmaker friends. You just need that person to come in and go, I know that your brain has been trained to do this, but just think about it like this, like take these puzzle pieces (laughs) and move them around. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's something very exciting when you, even if I don't inspire it, even if someone just comes to it on their own, you see that, that that flame that sort of starts and they go, oh fuck, and they start to reset and they they're cheering. They're like, oh okay, so if I do this and I do that and I go, yeah, then it just yeah, I know you didn't get the shots of the helicopter, but just cut to that door before the actress right. rolled in and then put the fucking sound effects of the helicopter landing outside. And right. then, well, that clip's not long enough. We'll loop it, take it and loop yeah. it. There's nothing else that's happening in that sequence, so no one will fucking know. So loop the goddamn thing. Oh the, shit. the best, the best feeling, the best feeling for me, like great, like a, a great example for me is, is like on two lives in Pittsburgh, this, this film, um, this latest film that we've got premiering at the end of the month. Um, what was what, always a good feeling for me is I, be, I love, I love it when I can rearrange a scene. Like, yeah. so I love taking a scene that should be like late in the film and like <laughs> putting it somewhere where they weren't expecting it so that they just immediately, they're like, wait, what, uh, what happened to the rest of my movie? And, but then it just <laughs> works. And we had that on two lives in, in, there was a pretty significant scene with, with our, our main character and his buddies in a, in a garage that was supposed to come much later, but emotionally, 
the reason that that scene that that scene just played better earlier. Yeah, and and I remember I remember Brian pushed a, back a little bit and was like, just just sit with it, man. Just sit with it. I think I think you're gonna love it. Just watch it a bunch. I think. And they ultimately, they all came back around. They're like, oh yeah, it just emotionally, it just works so much better. It doesn't spoil things. It gives things, it just, it allows the audience to progress with this character a little bit more naturally. And it, it, you would never know the difference. Like you would never yeah. now think that that scene could go anywhere else. But that's what I do it for me. And I love those moments. I love those. I love the moments where you solve a problem. Yep. Uh, or something that just doesn't fit right because the script read great, but then when you see it, when you see it all strung out, you're like, ah, that that doesn't carry as much anymore. But instead of just losing it, why don't we put it here and set up something else that they just couldn't have expected? And, and that's what I fucking love doing, man. I, that's what I love about editing is that puzzle solving. Yeah, but dude. also I love seeing the the director's face because <laughs> I have a, I have a pretty strict policy about if you hire me as your editor, um, regardless of what it is, I need you to fuck right off. Let mm-hmm. me get you your assembly and then come back in. And a lot of times, because you're coming off of a feature or you're coming off of a short, Mm -hmm. you've been living with that footage. You've been in pre pro for years, whatever it is, you've been living with the film already. You have this idea of what it is in your head and it's time for a little vacation. Yep. Fuck off, go hang out. And in a couple of weeks or whatever, whatever our timeline is, I'll show you a cut. And, and that is the most exciting and exhilarating feeling, but, but also, um, but also super rewarding because if I, if, if we've done our homework and we've had our discussions in advance and, and I'm, you know, I, I usually don't go into that with a lot of red flags mm-hmm. creatively because I know what the objectives are and it's just the best man. When, when, when you get to present a film, of, of version one, a very, very, very rough version one, but that still has temp and it still has a little flourishes and, and polish. And I, with two lives, I had all the producers and, and the director come back and be like that. That is the most polished rough cut I've ever seen. And mm-hmm. I said, well, look, I, I edit to complete, right? Like I edit, I present what I would in that moment be okay seeing, knowing full well we're going to still have to make adjustments, but knowing, hey, yeah. I'm going to present you the film the way that I would do, you know, with with, with what little involvement I've had up to this point, I'm going to give you a perspective um, that that hopefully is is you know most of it is is strung out to follow the script, but but occasionally like that scene change, I'm like I'm not going to give you an entirely different edit. I'll just move shit back to where you want it if you ultimately don't like it. But I'm going to present you your film in the best way possible. Right, right, right. Yeah, dude, that's great, man. That's great. It sounds like you're doing it the right way, my man. Um, well, let me ask, as, as we're getting close, because we're going to have to wrap this up soon, let me, sure. let me throw in a hot question. <laughs> sure. What do you think of AI editing right now? Scary, but... It, look, the genie's out, man. You know, like you're not ever going to be able to put that in the bottle. And and one of the things that you can love Nolan or hate Nolan, but but the standpoint of anyone that's like for Christopher Nolan, ah, film is the only way to go. You know, fuck fuck digital. Like we're going film a hundred percent. It's that same argument. 
it's usually people at the top of money who have a lot of success that get to say those kinds of things. The rest of us that don't have the super successful careers um, and are just doing what we can to thrive and get by, you now have to compete with that. So on one hand, it's scary, but what good is, am I going to do by saying, ah, fucking AI? No, I mean, look, it, it, it's scary not knowing where the industry and, and how editing is going to progress. I, I don't, I'm not smart enough to think of imagining where it can go, but, but every week it seems like something new is happening. There's a new app. Um, I just, I was just messing with an AI program in premiere uh, for a concert um, audio, audio pod, I think mm-hmm. it's called, uh, it's primarily for podcast editing. I, I, I just, I got the trial just to see if I could do it with a concert. It didn't work with a concert, but that's okay. Like, like it's exciting in the fact that like just thinking about premiere, you know, from, from, from avid to final cut, uh, shit, man, to my experiences with, um, iMovie even back in the day, which, which I thought was so easy when I, when I first started <laughs> and then right. going to final cut and then playing with avid and then to premiere. And I remember pinnacle pinnacle editing. My yes. God, like, yes. like the, 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 the luxuries that we have now as editors is an insane to think about. And, and every, every new thing that comes out that benefits me, that makes my life a little bit easier. I tend to enjoy. So, so I, I don't want to see a world where I'm AI has taken my job away from me, but um, you know, but for right now, I, I think, I think it's also exciting and it's something that I think we need protections, but I think, I think you also, you can't not embrace it, you know, cause otherwise you're just that old fuck that like, that doesn't want to, that doesn't want to surf the internet like my grandparents. Cause it's just, I mean, although my grandparents were probably correct that the internet has ruined the world. Um, you know, like, 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 I don't want to be sure, there. Like, I sure. don't, I don't want to, well, I don't want to date myself because I'm afraid of using something new and trying to learn how something new can, can well, actually help I, all creatives. I, I hear you. And so here's the thing. Here's what my response is to it. I think that, <laughs> I think that um, the fear that you, and I'm assuming that the fear that you have is the same fear that I would have, is that um, when we're younger and we aren't Christopher Nolan, we're required to do uh, corporate work or we're required to work for clients that will, you know, pay our salary for the year and then we can go and do our personal projects. That's, that's the big thing. And anybody that has ever done this before, you know that those producers generally, especially if you're younger in this business, and this is me doing a general statement, are often cutting corners and they're looking for Mm -hmm. ways to save as much money as they can because they're pocketing their cash. And there's a lot of scumbag fucking producers out there. So the fear with all this tech, whether you're talking about uh, using AI to generate art, AI to generate music, AI to generate edits is that these producers out there are just going to go fuck it and feed it through this AI system, pocket that full yeah. amount of money that's coming from their client, and then we lose the income that we need in order to sustain oh, ourselves, yeah. right? That's that's yeah, the big 100%. thing. That's the big thing. But I will say this yeah. as a as a creative. You were talking about all this really cool tech that came out with all the new nonlinear things. 
When I started, like I said earlier in the show, when I started, I edited film. I cut and pasted mm -hmm. film. The techniques that made my movies great when I cut and paste film are the same techniques that I use now when I use these nonlinear systems, even though the yeah. systems have figured out ways to sync multiple cameras and sync audio mm -hmm. and, and, and do all these shortcuts, which is wonderful for me. At the end of the day, the thing that makes my work so fucking good is my brain, my experience, my time yep. on this planet, and how I interact with individuals. AI cannot do that. And right. when you look at um, the editing software or the AI that exists right now for editing, it's essentially going through and basing it upon an algorithm or basing upon the sound waves. It's deciding when it's going to cut between shots. If you have a multicam thing, mm -hmm. it's making those decisions. That's great. If you're doing a podcast, you're doing something and you're not an editor and let me be fucking an asshole and be frank about it. You don't <laughs> give a fuck about how mm -hmm. people process your content. You just don't. Most people that get excited about this stuff are trying to get rich quick. And any asshole oh. that I see on uh, Instagram that's advertising for the AI edit stuff, those dudes, and I, I'm, I'm going to say dudes because they're usually tech bros. This is me being very specific. <laughs> totally. Those dudes are like, bro, I'm going to start a fucking podcast. I'm going to make a million yeah. fucking dollars. And then they are confronted with this wall, which is like, <laughs> fuck, bro, how do I cut? You know? Yeah. And so then, th then they're just like, wouldn't it be, yeah. I'm being a total dick right now. Wouldn't it be great if like <laughs> all I had to do was like, just push a button and it fucking cut for me. So here's yeah. what's going to happen. You're going to have an ass load of those people that are doing that. And you're going to have all the same fucking edits. And it's going to get to a point in a sea of mediocrity in which we already exist right now with the content that we're consuming that everybody's going to yeah. see that bro's fucking show about sweet t-shirts that I like to wear in order to get clients. <laughs> you're going to see that cut yeah. 400 times in your feed. And then you or I, who are still cutting, we understand the language of cinema. We understand how breaking rhythm, we understand how doing things erratically make things interesting. Our little thing is going to shine. Then what's going to happen, because it does right now, and I'll tell you why. Then what's going to happen is everybody's going to see that thing because suddenly that gets more likes, that gets more views because it's off the beaten path. It's not following the rhythm. It's not following the algorithm. So then people are going to look at that thing and they're going to go, yo, AI, figure out how he did that. And so they're going to desperately try to replicate what it is that you do. And then that'll be on a, a whole new thing. That'll be the whole totally. new algorithm. And so if you're a creative that's like, well, fuck, I came up with that system and that's how I define myself. Well, you're going to go extinct. But if you're a creative that is all about telling stories, living in the moment, understanding how to craft stuff, and understanding that all these things are just fucking tools for you. They're, totally. They're just tools for you. And if that's yeah. your mindset, you're not going to go extinct. You're going to get fucking hired. And I'll tell you this, man, I've been using Midjourney now to do like early on AI art just to, just to get a story going before I start to write something. And I've talked about it on the show. I fucking went on there and I said, you know, because when you use Midjourney, if you want to uh, have your images have the production design, the costumes, the lighting of a specific director, the first thing you put in there is imagine a film by uh, right. Martin Scorsese. Right. I, I put my name in and it replicated my looks 
And that's because my films have existed and they're out there and my looks are something different. And so that's what's going to happen for all of us as artists. So yeah. don't be afraid of it, man. No, no, you can't be afraid. And, and you know, from the photography standpoint, I already see this. The Adobe's dropped a lot of new updates and in their beta of Photoshop where it kind of, to me, this is like one of those things where, you know, I don't, I don't mind being an old man. I don't, I don't mind aging, right? But I'm also okay with like saying, yeah, I don't think a thing is for me. But I don't have to hate it. Like, like these, the the these new AI, like, there's a you know, you can take a photo of a person standing, you know, in a fucking grassy field and say, okay, add a lake by her feet, and it adds the lake. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's give her crazy. more volume in her hair, and it makes. And I look at that, I'm like, oh, okay, that's people are going to use that, right? Like, people are going to use that to their advantage. I, I'm going to be the motherfucker that's like, eh, you look at my photos, you like my photos. Guess what? A hundred percent real. Like, like not no AI with my with my photos because I because that for me is not the idea of taking a photo and then endlessly like George Lucasing it after the fact doesn't appeal to me. Like, and 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 yet I'm not threatened by AI in that way either because my fifteen my fifteen year old niece, right, like she's not going to give a fuck like what I've edited and, and what photos like she, she could care less. Like people are drawn to whatever the fuck they're drawn to. And, and so my heart at least is in the place of like, I just got a thing inside of me. I got to get out. Photography is like one of the easiest ways for me to do that. Editing is the thing that really brings me the most passion, right? It's just putting sequences together. And, you know, and, and I see a world where, well, not today, and maybe not even next year. I see a world where you'll be able to, you know, even Premiere and you know Avid and all these programs are going to be able to assist you in in the stylings of things down the road. But I, I always think a human operator, at least for the foreseeable future, is probably going to be needed on some level until the AI has just yeah. been secretly recording all of our styles, well, <laughs> all of our timelines and just machine learning, it, you know, is, is an element of premiere that they don't, you know, you have to read in the fine print or something. Um, <laughs> but, but it's okay. Like that, that that's okay too. Like I don't want to lose work to those bros. I don't want to lose work, but that's going to happen with or without my consent, right? Like it's going to happen or it's not, like you said, like we have to focus on, we have to focus on what we do and what we do really well. And we know we're good at what we do. I know I'm fucking great editor. In fact, I've been, I've been, I've been sort of joking that like, man, there should be an editing reality show, like an edit off. Like we should have like an edit off where like you just get a bunch of editors, you give them the same oh, stock dude, footage and then dude, like creatively you just like go fucking go wild. Like, okay, you have 30 minutes to edit this, this and this in this style. And oh, you just have like, stop, stop saying it because it goes, it's going out to the universe. And then, and then what it would be is just all this drama based around it where it's just like all that <laughs> the bullshit fucking drama. Oh. <laughs> Dude, that'd be the best. Get Seth Rogen to produce it. Seth Rogen can produce it. It's just a bunch of editors drinking whiskey, smoking weed, and just having a great time. And like, and then, but then you edit it in really dramatic, like Cardassian style ways. So it's really sure, super sure, over the top and sure. Stupid. It's, it's just um, like Miguel formatted my drives last night. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, who, the, who the fuck is? Yeah, yeah. It's smash cuts to it's smash cuts to like the interviews. They're like, yeah. 
Someone, yeah, Mike fucked it up. Someone activated my help. automatic software update. Now yep. I can't even load my project. Who did that? You know, it's like fuck. God up. damn it! That cuts to cuts to <laughs> us in the kitchen, just yelling at each other. Yeah, man. Yeah, good times. And, yeah. and only like five people will watch it because nobody gives a shit. Yeah, but, no one gives well, a shit about it. Well, <laughs> dude, I think this is a good. This is a good part. This is a good point to leave it, man. I appreciate you being on the show. I'm very excited. Absolutely, man. Um, that uh, your film is going uh, well, and I'm excited to see the full version of Two Lives in Pittsburgh um, and everything else that you're doing, man. And anybody that uh, wants to check out your stuff, where should they go? Um, MiguelAmodio.com uh, or MiguelEditsMedia.com. That'll Great. be up in the next week or so. So MiguelEditsMedia.com is probably where you should go. Uh, it's not up at the moment, but it certainly will be. It is a uh, good conversation, right? Um, I like I, I had to bring up the AI stuff at the end because I wanted to get his input on it. And you heard me get a little snarky in the episode because I, these guys that consistently, consistently show up on my Instagram feed and they're just like these two fucking dudes. They're, and I like them, man. They're cool guys. You know, they're very like overly zealous, but you just watch them and you go, you guys don't give a fuck <laughs> about what we do. You're just trying to get rich pretty quick, man. And it's a, a bunch of those dudes that exist out there that make us nervous because they're the first ones to be like, AI, you could do anything with AI. You don't have to integrate with other people. You don't have to pay other people. You can make instantaneous profits from your clients, you know, like that kind of shit. And you're like, guys, you don't give a shit about our industry. You don't give a shit about the art form, right? So you're just going to come in here and step all over it? Okay, got it. Well, here's the thing that I tell myself is I wouldn't want to work for those guys anyways. You know what I mean? Those would be the pain in the ass fucking clients. Those are the underpaying clients that when they finally give you a job or you finally get a job with them, they are treating you as if you should be thankful. This has been bestowed on you, this underpaid, over-fucking-delivered uh, gig and uh, you know, give me everything I need and we're not gonna give you any credit or accreditation. Those are the clients that are essentially going to be jumping into this AI boat. You know it as you're listening to the show. The ones that are a huge pain in our ass. And I wasn't kidding when I said it in the episode. I really feel like the way to defend yourself as an artist, the way to defend is, is, isn't the right word. The way to feel secure with what you're doing is really curve in hard on the human experience. Curve in hard on understanding the language of cinema. AI doesn't necessarily know the language. It's studying what's been done before and replicating that in some weird way. That's what it does. And so I... It's my goal as we push forward into this new world that people will be typing in my name for a prompt in AI. That AI will be studying my stuff and they'll have to redo it every time I release a project because it will be new, it will be different, it will be further uh, informed by my life experiences and by the life experiences by my collaborators and my friends that are around me. 
And my audience, you guys and girls and the people that love 12 cam and the people that love my films like my work because of the life I live. Okay. So I think you should take some solace and some comfort in that because even though I can type in a film by Christopher Nolan in AI, doesn't it just feel cheap? right? Doesn't it feel like a cheap knockoff? Don't you feel like you're going down to Canal Street in New York and buying a fucking like uh, uh, brand name purse? Yeah, yeah. Quotes. Brand name purse. It's the same thing, man. It just feels like a knockoff. And why does it feel cheap? And why does it feel like a knockoff? Because it's predictable to us. I mean, that whole thing's based on the past. It's based on predictability. And I like how unpredictable a filmmaker like Christopher Nolan can be. The fact that he's doing a movie on Oppenheimer. Right? Who, how the fuck, who would have even thought to do that right now in our current climate? Who would have thought to do that? And then do it in his very specific way, you know? And yes, of course, if you type in Christopher Nolan into uh, AI, it'll probably say, okay, so he, he's all about time. So time's a big thing. And he's all about music that consistently builds. And that's a big thing. And it would find all these elements and it would put it together. But essentially what you're doing is you're getting like the greatest hits of what he's done prior. Uh, am I hitting the nail on the head too hard here? I think as you get stressed and as we have these anxiety rising and all that sort of stuff, just remind yourself. I should just do stuff. I should make things. I should start to build the thing that everybody wants to replicate. You know what I mean? Feels a bit empowering when you think about it that way. I hope it helps. Thanks for listening to the show. Lots more cool ass episodes on the way. I'm about to start recording another one right now. So I can't wait to tell you who it is. Be sure to stick around and uh, as always, I will see you next Tuesday. you